Good evening. Ketanji Brown-Jackson is confirmed by the United States Senate as the first black woman justice on the Supreme Court. Russia is suspended from the United Nations Human Rights Council because of reports of atrocities in Ukraine and a conflict at a Lower East Side Park over a homeless tent encampment. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, April 7th, 2022. Yemen's president delegated power to a presidential council and dismissed his deputy today as Saudi Arabia moved to strengthen an anti-Houthi alliance amid United Nations-led efforts to revive negotiations to end the seven-year war. Yemen's warring sides had agreed on a two-month truce that began on Saturday. The deal eased the coalition blockade on areas held by the Houthis who ousted Hadi's government, the former president from the capital, Sana, in late 2014. But the shuffle hasn't impressed the rebels in control of Yemen's government today. Houthi's chief negotiator criticized the move as a farce and a desperate attempt to restructure the ranks of mercenaries to push them towards further escalation. Those are his words. The war has killed tens of thousands, devastated the economy, and pushed Yemen to the brink of famine. The conflict is widely seen as a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Nevertheless, the Houthis say they're fighting a corrupt system and foreign aggression. In other news from the U.N., six weeks since Russia invaded its neighbor, the United Nations Children's Fund, or known as UNICEF, says imports have been disrupted to the Middle East and North Africa food imports, where more than 90 percent of food comes from abroad. UNICEF said prices have also risen for essentials, including wheat, cooking oil and fuel. And if this situation continues, they say it will severely impact children, especially in Egypt, Lebanon, Libya, Sudan, Syria and Yemen. According to UNICEF, less than four in 10 young children in the Middle East and North Africa gets the diets they need to grow and develop properly. In Yemen, 45 percent of children are stunted and over 86 percent have anemia, whose most common cause include nutritional deficiencies, particularly iron. In Sudan, over 13 percent of children suffer from wasting. 36 percent are stunted and nearly half have anemia. In Lebanon, 94 percent of young children don't get the diets they need, while over 40 percent of women and children under the age of five have anemia. In Syria, where the price of the average food basket nearly doubled in 2021, only one in four young children gets a sufficiently healthy diet. Meanwhile, in New York, the United Nations General Assembly suspended Russia from the UN Human Rights Council over reports of gross and systematic violations and abuses of human rights in Ukraine, prompting Moscow to announce it was quitting the body. The U.S.-led push garnered 93 votes in favor, while 24, count, uh, 24 countries voted no and 58 countries abstained. This assembly has decided that for now the Russian Federation is suspended from the Human Rights Council. Membership in that council is and shall remain open to all member states of the United Nations. But those members commit to uphold the highest standards in the promotion and protection of human rights. Russia has violated those criteria through its activities in Ukraine. Ukraine's UN ambassador, Sergei Kozlitsia, spoke before the vote. We are in a unique situation now when on the territory of another sovereign state, a member of the Human Rights Council commits horrific human rights violations and abuses that could be equated to war crimes and crimes against humanity. 
Speaking after the vote, Russia's deputy U.N. ambassador, Gennady Kuzmin, described the move as an illegitimate and politically motivated step and then announced that Russia had decided to quit the Human Rights Council altogether. In related news, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's address to the Greek parliament today caused an outrage from opposition parties after a man who identified himself as an ethnic Greek member of Ukraine's ultra-nationalist Azov battalion appeared on a video. Zelensky spoke about the destruction of the Russian-besieged Ukrainian port of Mariupol, home to thousands of ethnic Greeks, and appealed to Athens for help. During his speech, he showed a video with a message by a man who identified himself as a member of the Azov Battalion, a far-right militia now part of Ukraine's National Guard. He said, I address you as a Greek by origin. I am Mikhail. My grandfather fought against the Nazis. I participate in the defense of Ukraine through the Azov Battalion. The video got an angry reaction from leftist parties, though. The head of the leftist Syriza party says the incident was a provocation, tweeting solidarity with the Ukrainian people is a given, but the Nazis cannot have a say in parliament. His tweet had won more than 3,900 likes by this morning. A Greek government spokesperson responded that the message of a member of the Azov battalion was mistaken and, and inappropriate. In national news, in a milestone for the United States and a much-needed victory, President Joe Biden made good on a campaign promise as Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson was confirmed by the Senate as the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. The vote to confirm the 51-year-old federal appellate judge to a lifetime job on the nation's top judicial body was 53 to 47, with three Republicans, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney, joining Biden's fellow Democrats. A simple majority was needed as Jackson overcame Republican opposition in a Supreme Court confirmation process that remains fiercely partisan. On the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson of the District of Columbia, to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. I ask for the yeas and nays. <laughs> is there a sufficient second? <laughs> there is, and certainly appears to be a sufficient second. The clerk will call the roll. Ms. Baldwin. Aye. Ms. Baldwin, aye. Mr. Young, no. On this vote, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. order. <laughs> the motion to reconsider is considered made and laid upon the table, and the president will immediately be notified of the Senate's action. Madam President, 
Very happily, I note the absence of a quorum. Of the 115 people who have served on the Supreme Court since the 1789 founding, all but three have been white. It has been ha- it has had two black justices, both men, Clarence Thomas, appointed in 1991 and still serving, and Thurgood Marshall, who retired in 1991 and died in 1993. Current Justice Sonia Sotomayor is the only Hispanic ever to serve. Latinx, I would say. Jackson will become the sixth woman justice ever. For the first time, four women justices will be serving together. Mitch McConnell, the Senate's top Republican, criticized Jackson in the debate before the vote, calling her choice that of the radical left. Self-serving citizens should not spend every June watching with bated breath to see if five or six lawyers will hand down sweeping policy changes with zero basis in the written Constitution. The Senate should only confirm justices who will follow the text of our laws and our Constitution wherever it leads. But Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer noted the country's legacy of slavery and past struggles to bring rights to women and black Americans. Today, we are taking a giant, bold, and important step on the well-trodden path to fulfilling our country's founding promise. This is a great moment for Judge Jackson, but it is even great, a greater moment for America as we rise to a more perfect union. The other women to have served on the Supreme Court include current members Amy Coney Barrett, Elena Kagan, and Sotomayor, the retired Sandra Day O'Connor, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died in 2020. And the United States House of Representatives recommended contempt of Congress charges today, uh, yesterday for Peter Navarro and Daniel Scavino, former aides to Donald Trump, for failing to cooperate with the House probe into the attack on the Capitol. Navarro, who was a top trade advisor to the Republican former president, and Scavino, who was a deputy chief of staff, didn't comply with subpoenas to appear before the House Select Committee probing the January 6, 2021 attack. Committee members Democrat Ben Thompson of Mississippi and Republican Liz Cheney of Wyoming agreed it was the right move. No one's above the law, and that's what the point we're trying to make. We asked the individuals, subpoenaed them to come before the committee, and they chose not to come, and therefore they broke the law, and that's why we're here today. The gentlewoman from Wyoming is recognized. We all have an obligation to abide by the rulings of the courts. So, yes, it was a false story. Yes, it was a big lie. In fact, former Vice President Pence has said that what President Trump wanted him to do was, quote, un-American. It was also unconstitutional, and it was illegal. Mr. Speaker, what gives me tremendous hope, though, is although so many in my party in this body have put loyalty to Donald Trump ahead of their oath to the Constitution, the committee has interviewed scores of Republicans from around the country who, in fact, have shown the kind of tremendous bravery and dedication to public service that every American can be proud of. On this vote, the yeas are 220, the nays are 203. The resolution is adopted. The Democratic-controlled House backed the charges against the two men, which refers the matter to the Department of Justice for a decision on whether to press criminal charges. Only two Republicans, Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, joined Democrats. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. 
The mother of Amir Locke says she's disgusted with Minneapolis after prosecutors decided not to prosecute the Minneapolis police officer who shot and killed her 22-year-old son during a no-knock raid in February. The shooting renewed calls for police accountability in the city where George Floyd was murdered. Criminal charges were seen by legal experts as unlikely because the 22-year-old Locke was awakened by officers who was awakened by officers entering the apartment under a no-knock warrant was holding his own handgun, a gun lock, legally owned. The next clip is from the officer's body cam. Warning, it is disturbing. Minneapolis Attorney General Keith Ellison made the announcement. Amir was not a suspect. Our investigation found no evidence that he had any role in the homicide investigation that brought the police to his door at 648 on February 2nd. Amir was a victim. He never, had have, he never should have been called a suspect. We have determined that under the precedent and the laws that we have, we cannot file criminal charges. Current law only allows us to evaluate the case from the perspective of a reasonable police officer. And that language is from the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and relevant cases and statutes. We're not allowed to evaluate the case from the perspective of the victim. With all the available evidence, we would not be able to prove in court that Officer Henneman's use of force was not authorized under the law beyond a reasonable doubt. After the killing, the Minneapolis Police Department's first statement described Locke as a suspect, fueling anger in the community in comparison to the department's first misleading statement about George Floyd, saying he died after a medical emergency. The officer in the Floyd killing was later convicted of murder. Starting tomorrow, Minneapolis police will no longer be allowed to use no-knock warrants. And in New York City news, at least six people were arrested yesterday near Tompkins Square Park in the Lower East Side neighborhood known as the East Village. The cops are there as part of Mayor Eric Adams' recent mission to clear the streets of unhoused New Yorkers over the next two weeks. Homeless encampments have been popping up around the park, infamous for numerous interactions between activists and police. Most famously, the 1988 riot caused by a police overreaction to anti-curfew protests at the park. That injured more than 100 people and led to a 10-city protest by unhoused people occupying the park for the next three years. Holden is an activist with Brooklyn Eviction Defense. He spoke with WBAI today. Yesterday at East 9th Street and Avenue B, the location of what has been called Anarchy Row, which is a group of houseless folks, their tents that they've put up where they've been living for the last couple of weeks. Yesterday, it was violently swept by a combination of NYPD, DHS, and the Department of Sanitation. There was more than 50, upwards of 75 cops on the scene for four tents, I believe, maybe five tents, four people total. People started showing up, both press and organizers and supporters around five in the morning. NYPD and sanitation showed up around nine in the morning, something like a nine hour standoff where I think because of the amount of press, there were dozens of reporters there. The police were figuring out over nine hours out of most 
tactfully evict our neighbors off of the street. Eventually, after a while, they offered our comrades hotels for the night. Those offers were uniformly rejected. Our comrades were very explicit about their demand, fair, clean, community-controlled housing for every unhoused person in New York City. Um, when my, my good comrade Ramza was the last man arrested, and while the cops were breaking down his tent and pulling him out of the tent, he was flat on his stomach and he was still chanting, apartments for all my homeless people. Uh, why the focus on Tompkins Square Park? That park has been a site of houseless resistance for decades and decades. The reason I was out there and the reason my organization was out there was because one houseless comrade in particular, Ramza, we've been working with him for months. He's been helping us with eviction defense efforts. It was time for us to help him with an eviction defense effort. Something that is super central to our organization and the movement we're trying to push is that Tenants refer to anyone who does not have control of their housing. The solidarity between housed tenants and unhoused tenants is incredibly important to us. My comrade Ramza has been at all sorts of eviction defenses of people who have houses while he's been housing insecure and living on the street. And so when his home was in the sights of the state, we had to show up. Message for the mayor who's been behind this crackdown and, uh, and the police commissioner, Sewell. Very explicit. The demands, as articulated by our houseless neighbors, one, an end, an immediate end to these violent sweeps, and two, fair, clean, safe, community-controlled housing for every unhoused New York City individual. Hold is an activist with Brooklyn Eviction Defense. And in more New York news, today, New York Communities for Change, a community organization group with 20,000 members, slammed Governor Hochul's state budget deal, calling it a total disaster. The group wrote, from bail to housing to excluded workers and much more, the substance of this budget is completely disastrous for our communities and for vulnerable New Yorkers most in need of services, support, and compassionate leadership from our state. Bail reform, the reversal of a measure passed last year limiting cash bail to offenses involving violence, has become a rallying cry for conservatives concerned about a recent spike in crime. Long Island GOP Congressman Lee Zeldin blasted Governor Hochul over the issue. And one of the changes the New Yorkers have long been calling for is for a repeal of cashless bail. They want a major overhaul to this legislation. Now, Kathy Hochul had a decision to make. Her strategy was to not propose any change whatsoever to cashless bail in her executive budget. As a matter of fact, she said that she needed to see data. We all have seen the data. She could count the amount of press clippings on her desk of people who have been victimized due to cashless bail. But she said that she didn't have any data. Nevertheless, Assemblywoman Latrice Walker, who has been on a nearly three-week hunger strike to emphasize the seriousness of the damage she believes will occur if the legislature rolls back bail reform, spoke yesterday on WBAI's program, What's Going On?, with host Linda Sarsour, pointing out that the right wing is using propaganda and outright lies to attack the law, which uh, eliminated cash bail for nonviolent offenses. This is day 16 of a hunger strike for me. After day 15, which is yesterday, is when I really began to feel the effects of, of hunger pains. New York State is about to pass a crime bill, which will send more people back 
to jail pre-trial and reverse many of the gains, as you know, that we've been able to achieve. They've been utilizing everything under the book. The reign of terror on the media has been expansive. Any shooting that takes place in New York City, in New York State, they blame bail reform, although any shooting is 1,000% bail eligible. Whenever it is that there is an attack, we've seen in our subway systems or otherwise, they've utilized bail reform as the reason for those attacks. Although under bail reform, if a person who is presented before a judge who exhibits clear signs of mental health crises, that those individuals can be addressed under the mental health law. And that is Latrice Walker, Assemblywoman Elise Trocker. She was heard yesterday on WBAI. The program What's Going On is heard every weekday at 7 a.m. on WBAI. Ames Gravert is the um, director or senior counsel in the justice program at the Brennan Center. He says that he doesn't think people are so much lying by using false information, but that their result, they're speaking from personal experience rather than the data, which is hard to come by about the real effects of bail and crime. He says what information is coming out shows that the uh, bail laws, the reversal of bail laws, the uh, elimination of cash bail has had no real effect. In fact, in some cases, more uh, liberal or an approach of less uh, incarceration has uh, worked to the benefit of bringing crime down. He spoke with BAI today. The ink on bail reform was barely dry before people became, began trying to blame it for rising crime. This was back in 2019 and continuing through 2020. Those arguments never really had much of a strong empirical foundation. Define empirical. Yeah, uh, because of the limitations on criminal justice data, it's very hard to construct an argument that assigns a cause to a single policy inside of a year after that policy went into effect. That became even harder in 2020 when uh, the year that bail reform went into effect was also the year that the country was rocked by a global pandemic and a number of other social crises teasing out the impact of bail reform from the impact of the pandemic, from the impact of any number of other things, is just very, very difficult and should have made anyone very suspicious of attempts to blame bail reform for rising crime in 2020. It's only now that we're starting to get good information about what the actual impacts of bail reform on crime were. And the verdict is looking very different. The gold standard of this data, there's a, a data panel that's maintained by the New York City Criminal Justice Agency, a local nonprofit that works with pretrial release issues. They show very little change in the rate at which people who are released uh, go on to commit a new offense between 2019 and 2020. That would suggest that bail reform did not contribute to anything like rising crime. There's also some data that the state released and that was analyzed by the Albany Times Union. And that data just came out at the end of last year. And that information also showed relatively low rates of rearrest for people who were released because of the bail statute. It's hard for the truth to catch up with a lie or sort of playing catch up now. Like we know now that there's very little evidence that bail reform led to rising crime, but we're struggling against a narrative where people have been convinced that bail reform and rising crime are one and the same. You mentioned yeah. lies. The implication is that Mayor Adams is a liar because he's one of the ones who are saying that bail reform is related to crime increase. I definitely wouldn't go that far. I do think that some people are speaking based on their anecdotal experience. I'm sure when police, for example, are saying that they believe that bail reform led to rising crime. Maybe they're reacting to something their patrol officers have seen. But anecdote is not data. In the early days of the pandemic, back in like spring 2020, NYPD claimed that 
COVID-related releases from jail and bail reform were leading to an increase in shootings in New York City. The increase in shootings was very real, and I'm never going to be one to dispute that. Maybe that is what some officers were seeing anecdotally. But when the New York Post asked for their data and combed the data themselves, they found the opposite was true, that very few people who had been released because of bail reform went on to commit shooting offenses. I hesitate to call anyone a liar. I think it's just a gap between different ways of looking at the world. I believe and you know, we believe that good policy starts with good data. But sometimes, you know, anecdotes can be very compelling. A lot of my work is convincing policymakers to look at what the information actually says and to hold out until we have reliable data before making hasty decisions. The whole issue of emotion, criminals are out there, drug dealers out there. We have a war on crime, a war on drugs, you know, all these kind of things. There's a sense that people have that when you look at criminal justice reform policies that are designed to sweep fewer people into the system, that those policies are being enacted because they're lenient and that they're not tough or something like that. But something we're actually seeing in the research is quite the opposite. There was a study out of Suffolk County, Massachusetts, for example, that followed a policy of one of the prosecutors up there of declining to prosecute in the set of misdemeanor cases, something that people might emotionally respond to and say, well, that's not tough. But if you look at the actual results, the people who did not receive a misdemeanor prosecution went on to commit fewer crimes than people who did. We're learning that when we're designing policy responses to complex problems like crime, complex problems like violence, it's humans start from emotion, but we really need to think through the policy outcomes and the data about any difficult decision like this. Lee Zeldin, the congressman who's uh, really, really pushing this bail reform, he's getting a lot of support. Yeah, so I should say I used to be a Nassau County prosecutor, actually. I worked for uh, DA Madeline Singus for four years before that, DA Kathleen Rice. Nassau County is an interesting place. Even when I was an ADA there, DA Singus, DA Rice were both experimenting with policies that would divert people from the criminal justice system to other interventions like drug court and things like that, and those interventions were wildly successful. There are ways to run a criminal justice system that's both fairer and more efficient, and if we can take the time to stop and think about what those policies might be rather than grasping for the first tools at hand, we can have a safer society and a healthier one, too. And that is Ames Gravert, and he is uh, from the Brennan Center. And finally, nearly a week after it was due, the New York state lawmakers and Governor Kathy Hochul have reached an agreement on the $220 billion state budget. A final agreement is expected in coming hours. According to reports, the budget deal would include a gas tax suspension from June 1st to the end of the year, and $5 billion will be spent on child care, including $125 million in pre-K. It will also include the authorization for the Environmental Bond Act, bringing $4.2 billion to bear on bolstering water and sewer systems against the effects of climate change. There's also $600 million included for a new Buffalo Bills football stadium. And that's some of the news for Thursday, April 7th, 2022. The news is producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.